Well, it is my privilege to introduce to you Dr. Ryan Rippey. And Dr. Rippey is a pastor, professor, and president at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary. Um, he has been a blessing in my life. He actually graduated from the Cornerstone Seminary in way fewer years than I have. I'll just tell that joke so you don't have to. And um, graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with his PhD. And I have been blessed by his leadership class at the seminary. I've been blessed by many conversations in the hallways and over coffee. And just with his desire to see the word of Christ proclaimed for the good of his people. To exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And his desire to see that instilled in young men and men who want to be pastors. I'm very thankful for him and for his ministry. Um, His family is here with us this morning as well. So would you please welcome him as he comes to preach the word. Thank you, Andrew. Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I have um, known of your church for many years. Pastor Chris and I have been friends. I I pastored in Brentwood for 14 years, and we would get together for coffee and or or breakfast uh, or sometimes lunch. And it's a joy to be with you. I'm going to be out of First Peter chapter two uh, this morning, and I'm going to speak on the subject of worship. Uh, As Andrew said, I I am a professor uh, at the Cornerstone Seminary as well as president, and I taught a class on worship for over a decade. I've handed it off to Michael Sinelli now, who is at Grace Bible Church in Pleasant Hill, and I want to share with you some of the uh, things I've learned about worship this morning, and we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word before us this morning. I trust that it would minister to the hearts of your children, those whom you've called and chosen and who are precious to you, that you would remind them of who they are in Christ and this great privilege of being a royal priesthood and all of the duties that entail it. But Father, would you encourage them this morning that the great reason, the great motive that they would want to give their lives in service and offer spiritual sacrifices is not out of fear. It's not out of peer pressure. 
It's not out of manipulation, but purely out of the reality that you from all eternity have loved them. And you demonstrated that love in the giving of your son. And you've shed that love abroad in their hearts by the pouring out of the Spirit. So now they would cry out, Abba, Father, and desire to give their lives in service to you in gratitude, in love, in worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, worship. It's one of those words that instinctually as Christians, we know what it means because we've been born again, but sometimes to put a definition into words can be tricky. It can be challenging. Uh, Over the years, I've asked numerous times, what is worship? And one of the, the best responses I've received overseas was that Praise and worship, praise was the fast songs that you sang at the beginning of the service, and worship was the song right before the preaching, the slow one. Now, that's a very narrow definition of worship. And and I would venture to guess that many people would say worship is singing. In fact, we worship and then we hear the preaching very often. We talk about that in our Sunday morning gatherings. And if we think about it a little more, we realize that, yeah, more than just singing can be worship. We could go to Hebrews 13 and there's a whole list of ways in which we offer spiritual sacrifices to God, the fruit of our lips, the praise of his name, offering of prayers, giving of uh, our money, um, all of these type of things. But very rarely do we think of uh, the small things of life as worship, eating and drinking to the glory of God as an act of worship, changing diapers in the nursery as an act of worship. There, this idea of worship as all of life, yeah, we, we understand that, that our lives are to be given over in worship, but how do we make sense of that? And I think First Peter chapter 2 helps us, you see, because all of our spiritual sacrifices, this imagery of priesthood, this life of worship, it flows from the reality that we now have the Spirit of God, this Spirit-empowered adoration and passion for God's glory to be known by others. And there's a couple major word groups in the Bible that are translated worship. Service and submission. And submission, we're not going to be talking in great deal about that word group, but in John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, the Father is seeking worshipers, and those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. That's the word for submission. And the idea behind that is, I'm yours, Lord, do with me whatever you want. It's the picture, especially in the Old Testament, of someone coming to a king and bowing down physically before them, prostrating themselves and saying, what does the king desire? And does that person have the opportunity to say no to the king? Not if he treasures his life. Not if he, not if he doesn't want to be kicked out of the kingdom or killed. There's, it's not an option. And so submission as worship is tied to the lordship of Christ. He's our king. He's our lord. He's our master. Now, of course, he's a benevolent king. And so we never have to fear that he's going to tell us to do something that would be evil or harmful or contrary to his desires and wishes as God. But even more fundamental than submission and service that we're going to be spending our time talking about is this idea of remembrance. 
And if we look through the Bible, we see that remembrance is talked of a lot. Israel was prone to forget God, to go chase after other idols. And so God gave them the law. He gave them Sabbaths and new moons and festivals. The Passover is the the climax of those festivals to remember God. They built altars at all of these places like Bethel and Ai. And to every time they would pass by, they would see the altar there that was a stack of stones and they would remember God. Or perhaps Joshua, when they crossed the River Jordan and they put those Ebenezer stones in the river so that when they brought their kids by, they would point to those stones in the river and say, this is how far God has brought us. Do you remember And they would rehearse the story of God's deliverance. And in the New Testament, it's no different. What do we do regularly as the people of God? We celebrate the Lord's Supper. And why do we do it? In remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And so remembrance is the foundation. Submission is the result of remembrance, right? Because if we're thinking about who God is and what he's done specifically in the person of his son, we say, I'm yours, do with me whatever you want. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is the whatever he wants, which is the service. That we're to offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. Now, now before we dive into verse 5 in particular, we're going to spend most of our time there. I actually want to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And in Genesis 2.15, you know the story well. Adam and Eve in the garden. Actually, at this point, Adam is the one God is speaking to. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And these two words of working and keeping are words in the Hebrew, shamar and avad, and they were also used in the book of Leviticus for the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood that was to work and to keep the tabernacle and later the temple. And so two responsibilities to work and keep were often used throughout the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, to speak about the priestly duty of working, or translated serving, and keeping. And that word service that's used right here in Genesis 2.15, avad, it's the same word when, you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh? And he told Pharaoh, let my people go. This is what God says, let my people go that they would go out in the wilderness and serve me. Or perhaps your translation says, worship me. It's this same word. Over and over it's tied to priestly service. And and what we're seeing in the book of Genesis and with Adam in the garden, that he's the, the first type of a priest, who was to not only serve the garden, he was to keep it, to guard it, to protect it. And he was also the first king. We know in Genesis 1, he was uh, given the command to name all the animals. He had the authority over all of the creation. And there was even a command to do what? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now to use this imagery of priesthood and kingship, You can imagine Adam and Eve are in the garden. The first priest kings 
who were told, be fruitful and multiply, and from Eden, you're going to fill the entire earth with a kingdom of priests. Little king priests that are going to go out and fill the earth. Why is this important? Well, the first Adam failed. He disobeyed, and sin entered the world. And all of the Old Testament was pointing to a new Adam that was to come, a Messiah that was going to come, who was going to make everything right. And what does this new Messiah do? He is the perfect king, the perfect priest. And because we're in him, because of the new covenant, now we are, as 1 Peter 2 says, a kingdom of priests. And we're going to get to Revelation, where it says we fill the earth, a kingdom of priests. And we serve God day and night. So I kind of want to give you the context of all of redemptive history to look at this idea of our worship, our servanthood as a lifestyle of worship rooted in this idea of priesthood. Why, why do I want to do this? Because when we think about the Old Testament priesthood, we think it's so far removed from us. We're not sacrificing animals up here. We don't have an altar or AKA barbecue up here to cook the animals and have the aroma pleasing to God. Although, wouldn't we all like to go to barbecue right after that and smell that aroma that's pleasing to us as well? It seems so far removed from what we experience today in the church gathering. But what I hope to show you is it's not. Now, turn over to Exodus 19. I want to stay, just kind of walk through a little bit of major milestones in the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, this is after Israel has been taken out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're at Mount Sinai. And in verse 5, God says to them, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses is told to tell Israel, if you'll obey God, you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was the Father's design. Israel, however, their service, their worship, it was given over in idolatry to the worship of other gods. They forgot God. They went and served other gods. They worshipped other gods. And so the Father wanted and expected Israel to be his servant, and they failed. We see this in Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 and 9. This was his expectation. You Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now Israel, this was God's plan, his design. What he intended them to be was a servant that would worship him and be a priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But in Isaiah... 
They prove to be deaf to the voice of God and blind to their commission. One more chapter over, chapter 42, verse 18. Hear you deaf. Look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is he talking about? Israel. Who's deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. And he goes on to lament the condition of Israel. So what does God do in the book of Isaiah because the nation of Israel refused to serve him and was deaf and blind? He says, I'm going to send my ideal servant, the Messiah, chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted As many were as astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he goes on to talk about this suffering servant. And I want to emphasize that word, servant. So what the father does is he places his son on center stage as the Messiah, the ideal servant who will bring Jacob back to himself. And not only that, bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Back in chapter 49, he said, it's too small a thing that you would be my servant to merely bring back the tribes of Israel, but you will be a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 49. And so coming to the New Testament, it's no surprise that Jesus is the Son of Man. Mark 10, 45 says, who came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. And how's he going to do it? Give his life a ransom for many. So we see Jesus as the second Adam. He's the one who's the perfect king priest. And we don't have time to run through all of the verses, but I know that you've been hearing about this at this church for many years. Who this Jesus is, he's the one who's going to reign forever with a scepter of righteousness over a new heavens and a new earth, Matthew 2 and 27 and Revelation 19 says. He's the one who's going to serve forever as our high priest at the right hand of the Father because he offered perfect worship through a supreme sacrifice of himself. 
He didn't take the blood of bulls, uh, blood of bulls and goats, the book of Hebrews says. What does he offer up? His own blood. And he didn't enter into the temple on earth. Where did he go? Into the very presence of God. And he offered up his own blood once for all to make perfect atonement for sin. Now, why is this so important? Well, the author of Hebrews says he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to him because he ever lives to intercede for them, to serve them. Back to the language of priesthood. You know what the problem of the Old Testament priest was? Their lawyer needed a lawyer. They couldn't make offerings for you and I because they were sinners too. And they were guilty as charged. And not only that, they died. And so you had to replace the high priest. But Jesus, who's perfect and undefiled and holy and harmless, was set high above the heavens, the book of Hebrews says. And his offering was a perfect offering, and he ever lives to intercede for us. And so our salvation is secure. This is really good news. This means that we will never lose it. It is not in danger of being undermined. Because right now, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ is interceding for us as a high priest, as the perfect servant. Not only that, he's going to be worshipped forever alongside of the Father because he's not just the perfect man, he's also God. And he's worthy of our worship. Now here's where we get back to 1 Peter chapter 2. In Christ... Because we're placed into Christ, and I love that we had a baptism this morning because it's the perfect illustration of it. What does that symbolize? As that dear brother went down into the water, and he was dunked under the water, and he was raised again out of the water, it pictures our union with Jesus Christ, who was died and buried and rose again. And because we're in Christ, now we are, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So now we are part of a royal priesthood. We are part of a holy nation And so what I want to spend the remainder of the time looking at is our credentials. What makes us a priesthood? Our purpose. Why did God keep this continuity with us as a priesthood? And what do these duties look like? What are we supposed to be doing because we're a priesthood? All of them are tied to servanthood as worship. So back to verse 5. Let me reread it for you again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what are our credentials according to this verse? He says that we're living stones. And I think implied in that idea, there is nothing more dead or devoid of life than a stone. That's the antithesis of life. And yet, Peter says, you're living stones. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the new life we have because we're in Christ, which is life from the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 2, he had said that we are being sanctified in the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. 
This idea of being born again or born from above or the new covenant reality that we have that the Spirit of God is now dwelling inside of us. Paul, when he talks and uses this language of house and temple in Ephesians 2, says the reason this house is being built and where the stones in it is that the Spirit of God is going to reside in us, a place fit for His dwelling. So the first credential we have is that we're born again. We have new life. We have the new covenant. This is incredibly important for priesthood. Why? Because now we have a spirit-empowered ability to serve. Those who worship God are going to worship not only in the truth, but also in spirit in this new covenant. This should bring us great encouragement because you're not left to your own devices. God's pleasure in you is not solely up to you. I don't know about you, but if it was all up to me to to please God by my life, I would fail. I grew up in Vallejo. That alone. I mean, you all, you live close enough to Vallejo, you know. The reality is, we now, because of the finished work of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension and his sending of the Spirit means we're not alone. It's not up to our power alone, but we have the Spirit of God working in us and through us. We're living stones. And the reason we're living stones, back in verse 4, is that we've come to Christ who is the living stone. Life is in Him. The Father has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Christ is the foundation of this living building, this living temple, and Christians are built on him, and therefore also living stones. But there's another credential we see here in verse 4 and verse 9, that we are chosen by God, a chosen generation, he says. There's great joy in being chosen, beloved. No matter how unqualified, no matter how sinful, no matter how lacking you think you are, If you are a believer, God has chosen you to be a priest. A kingdom of priests, Peter says. See, this is what Paul had written in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. You see your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak Things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Oh, there's great delight and joy in being chosen. And to think that you were chosen and I was chosen, beloved, not because of our greatness, not because of something in us, but purely out of the love and mercy of God the Father in Christ Jesus. This is glorious. And the next implication, the third credential we see is that because of this, we're precious to God. It's implied in verse 5. It's stated of the Lord Jesus in verse 4. You come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but chosen and precious. Just in the same way, we're chosen and we are precious to God. Paul in Ephesians 2.10 says we're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that word workmanship in the Greek, poiema, 
This is his handiwork, his work of art, his masterpiece. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the masterpiece is not only you and I individually, but you and I together being built into this spiritual house, a dwelling place fit for the Spirit. And here Peter is saying, you're being built into a house, a temple, and you're chosen and you're precious to God. You see, the New Testament name for God is Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The same name that Jesus used in the garden. Father, not my will, but your will be done. This name of intimacy and nearness and relationship that God the Son has with God the Father is the name that we're taught to pray to God with now. Yes, he is the almighty maker of heaven and earth. Yes, he is the Lord of glory. He's Yahweh, Elohim. But the New Testament name for him is Father. In fact, Romans 8, I love that passage. It's it's one of everybody's favorite chapters in all of the Bible, right? The Spirit of God in Romans 5.5 sheds abroad the love of God the Father into our hearts so that by the time we get to chapter 8 and we see that we are no longer living under a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but instead we've been given the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then Paul goes on to talk about the implications of what it means that we're in the family of God. It means nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us, he had said in verse 1. Isn't that incredible? As children of God, beloved by God, chosen and precious, brought into his family, he, by the Spirit, stirs up family affections so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Think about it this way. We have refrigerator rights in the kingdom of God. And I don't mean that to be, um, you know, irreligious or, or offensive. I mean that to give you the idea of the kind of intimacy and closeness. The hospitality. This is ultra hospitality. We sometimes think of adoption as one of the greatest forms of hospitality. That you would adopt someone and bring them into your family. And they would take your name and you would say, everything I have is yours. You're welcome into my home. This is what God the Father has done with us. He said, you're taking my name. You're now my child. You've been adopted into my family and united to my son. And the Spirit of God has been poured into you. And he's the down payment and pledge of your inheritance. And you're now a priesthood of believers. A holy nation. And you're going to serve me forever. And the most most important part of that service is not the duties we do, it's the being with him, the nearness, the closeness, the being in the family. We're seated at his table. We're drawing near to him because he's drawn near to us in his son. And so we're precious to him. These are our credentials. When somebody wants to know Why would you dare call yourself a priest of God? You will say, he chose me to be it. He loves me. I'm precious to him. And he's proven it by giving me his spirit who's indwelling me and now I'm not what I was. Well, why did he do it? 
Verse 5, we're being built up. He did it for a purpose to build us up into perfection. He has a vision for the church, for his people to build us up into a spiritual house. We are the building blocks of his church and we're living stones. And we're the priestly service in the church. Not only that, his purpose is to dwell inside of us. We're being built up as a spiritual house. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And 1 Corinthians 6.19, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When God looks at the church, His temple, He looks at Christians both individually and corporately and says, You are a fit dwelling place for the Spirit. And His purpose is to use us Verse 5, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be, in order to be, a holy priesthood. Priests are to be servants in the house, and God is telling us, you are, in the present tense, a holy priesthood, and he's continually working in you to make you a better and better priesthood. And one thing, one implication of this is that a priest who doesn't serve is a contradiction in terms. And I don't mean to say that to put a guilt trip on you, far be it. If I said a priest who doesn't worship is a contradiction in terms, you would say, of course. That's their whole existence and function. Their job description is to worship. They're a priesthood. Well, the word worship is translated service. So this is what we're created to do, to be as the house of God. Well, what does that look like, our priestly duty? He says in verse 5, very generally, it's to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God the Father through Christ Jesus. We have a couple other details in the New Testament about what that looks like. In Romans 12.1, Paul says we offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice which is our spiritual act of worship or our reasonable service, some translations say, which I take that to be the better translation. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship. Everything we do then with our bodies is an act of worship to God, whether we eat or drink or hammer nails or drive a car or make a meal or program a computer or read a book or kick a soccer ball or mend a shirt. Whatever we do with our bodies, we do to the glory of God. And so we have to start thinking about all of our life is an act of worship. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. In the Old Covenant, the only ones that could be priests were the Levitical priesthood. Only one tribe out of 12. And of that tribe, only one family could serve in the closest, nearest place to God, in the Holy of Holies, the the family of Aaron. And sometimes in the church, we think that that's the same kind of pattern, that only the pastor is the one that does certain things. After all, he preaches, he's up in the front. He gets center stage. Maybe only the past, maybe the pastor's closer to God. Maybe the pastor's kind of like the family of Aaron, that he's in the Holy of Holies, and here we are kind of one step removed. But that's not what's going on, is it? All of us are a priesthood. 
All of us have access to God. All of us can draw near to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And so this means that everything we do, it's not only the preaching or the singing or the upfront ministries that is an act of worship. Everything that you do in the body of Christ is an act of worship as part of your priestly duty. And so I know I made a joke about changing diapers, but it's not a joke. It's a reality that those people in the nursery who are serving your children so that you could gather and sing and hear from God and pray and give and serve, that they're serving you so you can serve others and it's priestly service to one another. In Hebrews 13, praise and thanks is mentioned. This fruit of the lips that gives thanks to his name. In Philippians 4, acts of love are mentioned. The like giving and sharing. Hebrews 13, 16, don't neglect to do good and share for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So our priestly duty, what does it look like? We're to offer spiritual sacrifices of our body, the fruit of our lips, acts of love, deeds of service, But not only that, closely tied to the duty of spiritual sacrifices in the New Testament is the duty to offer up spiritual gifts. Over and over, the priesthood in the Old Testament gave gifts and sacrifices. The book of Hebrews picks up on this idea and says that we are to offer spiritual gifts in service to one another, and they are acceptable through God in Christ Jesus. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we see Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts, and this will be the fastest outline of 1 Corinthians 12 you've ever seen, but at least we're over here. Beginning in verse 4, there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So at the very beginning of Paul's discussion on spiritual gifts, he says gifts, a.k.a. service, a.k.a. activities. These are, he uses a Trinitarian shape to say there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord Jesus. There's a variety of activities, but the same God the Father who's, as he says, empowers all of them and everyone so this trinitarian shape to spiritual service or gifts they're tied together and so what does he say the source of gifts is from the triune god verses four to six verse seven they're given for the common good he says to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good verses eight through eleven there's a diversity of gifts not everybody gets the same gift Verses 12 to 19 is the longest section where he says that every gift is necessary. The eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And then verses 20 to 30, he says every gift is interdependent upon one another. Verse 27, you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we're to use our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ because each of us individually have gifts And gifts are not meant to be used for ourselves. Have you ever thought about that? You can't, the list of spiritual gifts you cannot use in isolation from the church. You can't use by yourself. Even the gift of preaching can't be used by itself. 
I can't sit in a room and preach to myself and have it be useful. It would actually be a little bit weird, wouldn't it? All of the gifts are meant to be poured out and used in the lives of others. So, whether spontaneous or planned, whether age or gender specific, whether home groups or one-on-one discipleship, every priest is offering up spiritual gifts in the context of the church as an act of worship so that we will all be built up, encouraged, edified, strengthened. And finally, tied to this duty is that here in 1 Corinthians 12, He's not stopping the conversation on spiritual gifts there. He goes into chapter 13 and says, we also, in the context of our giving of spiritual gifts, must be displaying spiritual fruit. So every sacrifice, every gift that we offer as priests of God, first off, they're only acceptable through Jesus Christ, and secondly... They're only acceptable when they display the fruit of the Spirit. He says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and yet I will show you a still more excellent way. Well, Paul, what is that more excellent way here? Well, chapter 13, he says, hey, listen, I could have the greatest gift of speaking. If I speak of tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I could have the greatest gift of prophecy that I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I could have the greatest gift of faith so that I could remove mountains. But if I have love, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I could have the greatest gift, he says in verse 3, of of giving, that I give away all I have, that I even deliver my body up to be burned. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. In other words... Spiritual gifts and by implication, spiritual sacrifices without spiritual fruit are worthless. What's the foundation then? It's not the sacrifices. It's not the gifts. The foundation is the fruit. And so that's why he goes on to say, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The foundation of our spiritual gifts and our spiritual sacrifices is our love. God's love for us is what initiates our love for others, right? John tells us we love because he first loved us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. Paul says, the love of Christ, Christ's love for me is what compels me to love others. And when we hear Paul's discussion in Galatians 5 of the fruits of the Spirit, two truths are evident. It's the fruit singular of the Spirit, even though there's a list of many fruits there. He considers it one fruit. And secondly, because love is at the beginning of that list and it's one fruit, many have concluded, theologians and commentators, that all of those other, get, those other fruits are manifestations of love, the head fruit, the chief 
fruit. Love is the main fruit, and every other fruit comes from that. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So love is at the heart of true servanthood, offering gifts and sacrifices, which means that love is at the heart of true worship. So it comes back to what we already know, that we are to love God and to love others. Now, a passion for worship in the local church, a passion for service or worship in the local church, it should not be rooted on simply our desires, our wants, but really it should be informed by Christ's passion, his plans for his work in the local church. Why? He's the chief servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. So he's the ideal worshiper. He's the one who shows us what true priestly service looks like. And thinking about this theology of worship, and those three words I mentioned at the beginning, remembrance, submission, and service, Think about how it kind of plays itself out. If someone's not serving in the church, they're not using their spiritual gifts, they're not offering spiritual sacrifices, well, why aren't they doing that? You see, one of the, one of the things that we can often do is we can see people who aren't serving and we want to motivate them by all sorts of ways. Maybe we motivate by fear and say, well, if you're not serving, then you need to ask yourself, are you even a Christian? Maybe we motivate by guilt. Well, everybody else is serving. Why aren't you? Maybe we motivate by peer pressure. Well, if you want to be in the in crowd here at Clayton Valley Church, you better serve. Because if you don't, we're just going to sort of ignore you. No, I'm not saying that happens here. I'm giving hypotheticals. Don't, don't, don't be offended or throw rocks at me. But haven't we done that in our own lives? Maybe we even do it with our own children. Motivate by fear or guilt or manipulation or peer pressure but that's not how we're motivated in the new testament new testament we're motivated by the gospel so if someone's not serving the reason they're not serving is they're not submitting to the lord jesus which is translated worship and the reason they're not submitting is they're forgetting who he is and what he's done and so what is the answer to get to the motivation is to preach the gospel to remind people of who Christ is and what he's done. He's our high priest. He's the ideal worshiper. He's the son of God. He's the one who died for our sins and was buried and rose again. And he's seated in the third heaven as our high priest. And he ever lives to intercede for us. And he loves us. And what does that do? Well, Galatians 2.20 says, right? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live and yet... Yet I do live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we remember who Christ is and what he's done. Well, then we say, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. Do with me whatever you want. And the whatever he wants is the service. Well, use your spiritual gifts, bear spiritual fruit, offer spiritual sacrifices, put away sin. Put away the idols of this world and fix your gaze on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, and run the race with endurance. This is how we motivate our people to worship. 
This is what the Father wants. This is what the Spirit wants. Do you know that they're the two most Christ-centered persons in the world? What did the Father say when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, He said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And the Spirit's ministry, according to the upper room in John, when Jesus says when the Spirit comes, what's He going to do? He's going to take what is Jesus's and He's going to disclose it to us. He's going to shine a floodlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We motivate people to service as a priesthood, to worship by placing the person and work of Christ before them, preaching the gospel to them, and all of the implications that come out of it weekly in every element, every part of the corporate gathering. And as we remember who he is and what he's done, we submit in every area of our life by killing sin and serving him in love. And this is the response of the gospel that's called worship. Service, priestly duty. Uh, let's, in closing, turn over to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation, I could go to Revelation 21 and 2, but let's go to Revelation 7. This is what we're going to be doing forever. We're going to be a kingdom of priests. Forever. You see what Adam was told to do to fill the earth with a bunch of little king priests and subdue it? He failed. But the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue who are in him are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and they will fill the earth. Chapter 7, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And what, are the, what do we do before the throne of God? They serve him. Day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Now that reference of living water, John mentions this in his gospel when Jesus, you remember that day of the great feast when he gets up and he says, anybody who's thirsty, come and drink of the water, right? Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John comments and he says, oh, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who was not yet poured out because Jesus had not yet ascended. I think that's what's going on here. You see all three persons of the Trinity, us in their presence, and he's guiding us to springs of living water. In other words, he's guiding us into a spirit-empowered eternity, and God the Father will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so we are going to serve God forever across this new heavens and new earth as a kingdom of priests. This means what we do on Sundays, what we do in our lives, this is the dress rehearsal for eternity. This is a foretaste of what eternity is going to be like. This is what he's brought us into, and this should give us great hope. This should give us great encouragement because I would not want you to leave this message thinking that I want to put heavy burdens on you, that you, need, you have all these duties that you must fulfill in your own strength. Far be it from that. Rather, motivated by how much God the Father has loved you
and demonstrated it through the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by dying for your sins, by being buried and rising again, now exalted at his right hand and interceding for you, and that the Father and Son have poured out the Spirit into your lives so that you now have resurrection power at work on your behalf in your life right now. That all of this job description and duty as a priesthood is done in the power of the Spirit for the glory of Christ to the praise of God the Father. And this is what God is building us into. This is what he desires. This is what servanthood as worship looks like. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to align ourselves to what you are doing. Not only what you're doing today, but what you've been doing from the very beginning and what you will be doing for all eternity. And Father, to think that as the ages roll on, you'll be continually revealing your grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, that we will never get over the gospel. But it's not just about the future, even today. Because we are in Christ, because we are a priesthood, we have access to you. We can draw near to your throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. I pray for my brothers and sisters as they meditate and think upon what it means to be a priest of God. Not only that they have opportunity to serve as an act of worship, but they have access to you and they can draw near. They're seated at your table. You are their father. They can call you father. And you are the giver of every good and perfect gift in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Bless them now. I pray for Clayton Valley Church that they would be fruitful this year. That that as we look to 22, that, Father, they would see many come to Jesus, that they would be a city on a hill, that they would be meeting the needs of people in their church and loving the lost, and that you would give them a great vision and clarity of what it means to be a holy house here in Clayton and Concord. Bless them. Bless their ministry. May it bear much fruit to the praise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.